You know, when you, I think about this in a pastoral way, in the sense that you pastored that, you know, you're pastoring that business. You really are shepherding it. You want to make sure that your employees are taken care of, the people that are working hard and that are doing the job there, uh, doing such a good job. You, you want to make sure that they're taken care of for the next generation, for the next thing that happens. And so you decide to do something that really is unprecedented in so many ways. And I, I think about this in terms of, you know, people that start businesses so often is, a lot of them have in mind, I'm going to build it up, I'm going to cash out, and I'm going to be set for life. And probably for multiple generations, my family's going to be set for life. All the money that I'm going to sell this place for. And you certainly could have done that. That there would have been, like you said earlier, uh, some of these corporate type places would have taken it over and you would have been fine forever. But, but you did something different, uh, something that it does not happen very often. And I want you to share a little bit about giving the company away in a sense. Well, um, the program is called ESOP. It's uh, Employee Stock Ownership Plan. It's uh, sanctioned and approved by the Department of Labor and um, the IRS. It's actually a sale, it's not a give, but the employees don't have to pay money to get it. The business buys the business from itself by earning the money. And so um, it takes some outside lending, it takes seller notes, right? So we're, it's kind of like, uh, here's an analogy, kid wants to get a, a young couple, they want to get a house, huh? mom and dad, we can't afford it. And it's like, man, houses are $450,000. Well, me and your mom have a house, we're thinking of retiring, how about, we sell it to you for three fifty. Mm. Whoa, that'd be great. Can you carry the paper too? It's like, well, we kind of like to take a trip. So you get a loan for one fifty, and we'll loan you, you know, yeah. two hundred, and it's yours. You have equity on day one. It's your house. You got to pay us. You got to pay the bank. And we're taking a haircut on this. Could have sold it for a lot more to somebody else. So that's a little a simple analogy. Don't so anyone yeah. could how ESOP works. But it's also, it's a very, very, very complicated financial structure. It's a trust. You form a trust. It's an ESOP trust. And then there's a thousand jillion rules and uh, covenants you have to meet. And the first bunch of years, in a way, it's like you sold to private equity and a new owner owns it. But the new owner is, are the employees. So they're the ones that are going to reap the benefit, and the management team is the same management team that was running it up to that point, mm -hmm. and they're dedicated to those employees, and we're going to make the decisions that get you guys where you need to go. Then one day those loans get paid off, and they produce boatloads of cash, and in reality it's a retirement program because the people have shares in the company, and when they leave, the company buys those shares back. Those are called repurchase obligations. And those repurchase obligations, you have to be, you have to be very, very astute in your financial management to be able to always have the money for those repurchase obligations. But it's a wonderful way. So now you have employees. I, I, I kind of, I'll just say this, but I'll, I, I say I'm trying to bring sexy back to, to um, pension. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. retirement, you yeah. know what I mean? Because oh, yeah. <laughs> um, now we have a pretty alluring um, retirement program for people because they have their 401k, which we match, and 
they have their own savings, which they want, and our profit sharing goes into their 401k, and we match what they put in it up to a certain amount, but it's a big match, and then they have their shares here. So you, if you just stick around yeah. and work there, if you want to, and you stick around and you start in your 20s or 30s and stay till you retire, it turns into a bank. There's money there. It's not a little bit of money. It's, it's a lot of money, all based on sharing that equity and that growth of the company with the employees. And there's a pep in everybody's step. They're called employee owners now. And I, I'm no longer, I don't have a share in Taylor Guitars mm -hmm. at all. So, um, and we gave away our job to Andy. Kurt gave away his CEO job. I gave away my president job. So Andy's our chief guitar designer and president CEO. And he's doing all three of those jobs. It's not, wow. it's not like we're doing those other two jobs and he has that by, no, he's doing those jobs. He's smart enough to do it. Here's the thing I didn't ask for. He was everything that Kurt ever wanted to replace himself. <laughs> oh, wow. Everything. Again, he's financially astute. And that's, uh, I didn't ask for Taylor, a name of yeah. Taylor, you yeah. know. I didn't ask for him to be good, uh, to be able to be mentored by Kurt on finances. He's, Kurt asked him questions. So how's that work on the, and Andy will <laughs> explain it all. And, uh, and so uh, Andy had become an owner. We brought him in as a partner before that. So his position in the company is different than everybody else's. He's got a one foot in, one foot out, and it's a financial thing that people do. But he, he can, he'll do well over his life, yeah. and and so we did that. And it's um, we could have we could have sold for a lot more money, mm -hmm. and I gave back a lot of the money that was due me to the ESOP. I mm -hmm. would have never done that to a corporation that bought it. Yeah. I would have said, thank you, I'll take it all right now. Thank right. you very much, ma'am. I'll take that. Um, but I, Cindy and I saved our money along the way. We have money. We're okay. Our kids are taken care of. I worry about taking care of family for generations because that's going to usually not go well. Yeah. My, I'm super confident of this generation. Mm -hmm. My daughters, we started teaching about, about the time they were 12 and 7, I realized, I see that we're going to have some money, so I'm going to start teaching you girls about money, about what yeah. to do with it, how to have it, how to share it, you know, how to not I mean, that's waste one thing it. They don't teach in school, you know, kids come financial education, yeah. right? knowing what to do with your, your finances yeah. so, is such an important thing. Um, I'm, I'm real, real happy with that. It's a joyous thing for me. I like, I like being there. So um, my title is co-founder and senior advisor. What and does your involvement look like? On this? I go there every day. I love being there. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm circling the camp, looking at ways to monetize things that used to be wasteful, hmm. right? I, the guitar part's covered. Although I can sit down with Andy and go, you know, I was thinking. Maybe we could, oh, that's a good idea. Or he'll explain to me why that's not a good idea, you know? And... Um, and so there's other products we're getting into because we have a huge waste stream of wood mm. that I'm super attuned 
to the condition of our forests yeah. world around. Yeah. And hear me now, believe me later, it's dire. Mm. It's dire. Doesn't mean that plants don't grow. Yeah. But we've been mining wood for millennia. Yeah. And no one's going to wait 500 years for that next tree to grow. And, and we have we cut down trees this big, and there aren't trees that big anymore. And things are getting really pushed in. So we're planting trees. We're planting the right kinds of trees. We're using trees in a different way. And when you cut down a tree and eat the heart and throw away the rind, the rind should be made into watermelon pickles at least. Yeah. Right? And so the, I'm doing a lot of that. that and we, we're starting some other companies and that make other things. And out of some of that waste stream to try and monetize that, help the ESOP. Yeah. And I spend time talking with employees. I find that people are more interested in finance. And I'm like, go out and buy this book called The Millionaire Next Door. Just go buy it. It's this thick. Read yeah. it. That'll teach you everything. Forget all the other ones. Just read this one. <laughs> you know, the money you don't spend is worth way more money than the money you earn, you know. And um, give a few things like that. Talk to them. In fact, um, John Maxwell did his um, exchange uh, 2022 here in San Diego a few months ago, and his first day was a stop at Taylor Guitars. This is 150 of John Maxwell followers who pay yeah. big money to come to this, and he makes a thing for them, you know, yeah. I mean, really something. And they were there, and they, and they toured. And um, so I said, hey, John, we come into the little studio and speak to the employees about employee ownership. I'll send you that video sometime because yeah. he just sat down and he said all the right stuff. Yeah. It was amazing <laughs> for them to, you know, I, we're trying to teach them how to think. People go, Bob, can I do this? I go, well, that's not the, it's not what we're doing anymore. It's like I used to be the guy that guarded the safe and you would ask me if I would open it and close it, you know, but now I need you to think like an owner. Mm. You're going to open it and spend that money? What are you going to get back for it? Are you going to decide that maybe somebody else needs the money more and it would benefit us as a group better? And you start getting people think that way. That's good. That's so, good. anyways, those are just some of the little things. That was a meander of an answer. That's but, good yeah. I think about succession, you know, from a church standpoint, typically, um, statistically, Probably 90%, might be 85, 90% doesn't go well with succession in terms of, well, in this instance, a lot of times the, the pastor who was there wants to stick around. And that's fine if that pastor is very humble and wants to participate in that way. And, and, but what happens, why they fail so often, successions fail so often, is the pastor wants to stay and still lead, even though he's not in the lead seat, and lead in a way that is opposite of the one that is there. So it fails, oftentimes. It doesn't work. And so I do a lot of church consulting, and so whenever that's kind of the scenario, you're always looking at the, the pastor that's in the seat right now that's looking to transition, what kind of person is, is, is going to be able to do that, because it could be a great benefit to the person coming in if that pastor is the type that wants to help. That sounds like your situation. Senior advisor. Yeah. Typically, you're looking at this going, if I'm coming in there, Bob Taylor's still going to be here. The guy that founded the company is still going to be here. He's going to be looking over my shoulder. Is he going to be telling me, don't do that, don't do that. I've done this this way for so many years. So you've had to 
you just said senior advisor. You're there to help, give advice, but, but that's got to be, that's, gotta, that's an interesting relationship. It has to be humbleness on your part. There's got to be a humility level there. And there's got to be stuff that Andy does where you kind of go, wait, or is there? Or is it kind of a, okay, well, it's his. Well, for the first 10 years, literally, of Andy just working for me, I, I introduced him to the world every day for 10 years. So people say, what do you do? And, I, and I, this was my answer. I lived my life to watch Andy soar. Mm. Mm. And I did. Gosh, it's good. Okay. So you, the guy going out should do that. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I got, I got what I needed. I got more than I ever expected. And my business card still says Bob Taylor. It's like, well, what are you now? I'm like, I'm Bob Taylor, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm welcome wherever I go. Where I, any department I go to, I'm welcome. And uh, I remember on some of Andy's first meetings, I could, he was on Zoom meetings, and he's making decisions. And I knew that he was up against a few things, and him and I chit-chatted about it. And I just wrote a Post-it, walked into his office, snuck in, put it down. He's sitting on his Zoom stuff, talking away, and he looks down, and I just said, remember, you're the president and CEO, right? Because even for Andy, he's got an executive team, and we never put him on the executive team because we didn't want to dilute his, mm -hmm. his focus away from making guitars. And so he jumped straight into President CEO. But he, he did it when he had the capacity. In, in planting uh, trees, we say right tree, right location, you know. And so much of life is timing, you know that. And sometimes you can't get perfect timing. Yeah. And, and sometimes it rubs a long way. But if, if there are people that want to step down or, or succession in a church, you've got to support that person. And to me, a lack of humil humility really means to me a lack of confidence. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's true. So when people say, well, you're really humble to do that, I usually say, no, nah, my ego's intact. I'm confident. Mm. I'm confident that I chose right. Yeah. I'm confident that I wrote that list. That answer came. I, how could I argue with any of that? Yeah. I'm confident that, well, when I was in my mid-20s, we were switching from a general partnership to a corporation. We chose a S-corp rather than a C-corp. I didn't understand any of that. And we were in with attorneys and accountants and Kurt, and I said, well, what's the difference? They said, well, with an S-corp, you can keep more of the money when you sell your company. I understand why now, but um, then I did, and I go, well, I'm not selling my company. <laughs> and my attorney looked at me and said, Bob, you're going to sell your company. You're going to sell it on the day you die by accident or sometime before that on purpose. Mm. I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to start preparing for selling my company right now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start preparing for that right now. Wow. And so I, and a lot of people, I'll mention this, a lot of people say, well, who's your mentor? And I, and you know, you feel like an idiot if you can't name one. Right. And so finally I've come 
down to this answer. It's, it, it took me till last year to come with this. And I said, my mentor is the little one-line truths that a lot of individuals have dropped into my life along the way. Mm. Augustino Laprinzi, guitar maker, older than me. I went to visit his shop. I was 22 years old. I was about to get married. I'm trying to make 10 guitars in a batch in a month. I would end up ruining four of them. So there were six, and then I would get, take two months to make it. So instead of 20 in two months, I had six in two months. But I would set up and make 10 bridges, set up and do this. And he, had, he was older, wiser, had a little shop. I, I go, I only see one guitar. Yeah, I make one guitar a day. I move them along, I make five guitars a week. Well, what about your bridge? Well, I make, when I need a bridge, I make a bridge. I didn't realize, he didn't realize that he was teaching me lean manufacturing at that time, that making something that you don't need is a waste of a resource, mm. right? And I go, Augie, it's a lot more efficient to make a bunch of something and take advantage of the setup. And he just looked at me and he said, Bob, what would you rather have? One done guitar or 10 half done guitars? <laughs> That's great. And I'm like, man, I... It was like when Tom Anderson said he has this CNC machine. I'm like, I want to go home right now. Yeah. Can I do it? it? Can I catch an early flight? You just taught me something that's going to change my life. Wow. And I couldn't wait. I would have bicycled home yeah. to implement that. And I did, and it changed my life. And so there are a lot of things like that yeah. that somebody has said. Lots of them. Hours so worth of them. And you talk about, you know... Uh, the going back to the forests and the wood and I, something struck me you you got you have places that you um you get your wood from all over the world but you don't just go in and thrash it use it and go out you mentioned you're planting as well there but can, can you share some of the places where you get your stock from mm-hmm some things we have more control over it than others, but um, we've managed to, well, before I talk about some of the places that we plant, <clears throat> mahogany is the king of woods. It comes from Central America, but the British planted it around the world early on, like in like 100 years ago, because they were sailing around colonizing, and they liked to build boats out of mahogany and so why not grow it in Fiji and India and that kind of thing well they planted they put mahogany trees all over India some long lost person decide that I don't know who he is but we're using those trees instead of forest trees you know and there's if they manage it right there's an endless supply yeah. and so we look for things like that currently we're, we're making a lot of guitars out of what we call urban wood these are trees that are owned by municipalities. They're cut down by a single arborist that we know that has 300 contracts around the US. And the right ones, instead of getting ground up and hauled off to the mulch pit, we cut into, so we're making guitars out of those. So they're coming down anyway. Yeah. Trees have to, they reach end of life. They're gonna fall over, they're up to it. They're gonna fall in a house they're, and they're all yeah. municipal. Those trees all get replanted. Um, I started buying wood from Central America 20 years ago, this was sort of the start of my thinking, when we decided to go, to be modern, you have to be primitive. And so we went into three villages in Honduras and we contracted with them to cut a few trees a year, helped them with um, 
sawmills, little sawmill, and they would cut for us, and they get the money. So the wood came from their village of 40 homes to our place, and the money went from our place to their village, and we ended up supplying with that business more than half of their annual income in these villages, and it was a very, very good way. No roads, no anything. Sometimes the best work goes sour because the drug lords came in when mm. they cut off the the air and sea entrances. They oh. started going by land, and they've they've pretty much settled and taken care of those forests. And wow. so that one didn't last. Um, mm. If it hadn't been a cataclysmic takeover by settling population, drug drug lords coming in there, yeah. pushing their way in. Honduras is a very dangerous place right now. Mm -hmm. But we had an opportunity at one time to go to Cameroon and see a uh, ebony mill that was for sale. Our, a Spanish supplier and friend of ours told us about it. It was a Spanish man who owned it. He wanted to retire, move back to Valencia. Well, we went there and we looked at it and said, yeah, we'll buy this thing. Oh, man, if we would have known. But everything about it is was dicey and um, awful, awful place to work. It's so hard, the, the corruption that's mm. there and the lack of any type of infrastructure. Anyways, we bought that mill. I remember on the 11th hour, it was literally 1130 at night, we're signing papers next day. My partner, Bidal de Teresa from Madrid, we were at the hotel, and he rings my room. Bob, I can't go through with this. And I walked across, knocked on his door. Vidal, let's talk. He's like, everything about this is there's so much illegal stuff. And I go, well, Vidal, let's think about this. If we don't buy this company, you can never sell ebony again, and I can never use it again because we can't unsee what we've seen, and we can't unknow what we know. Hmm. So the only way we can actually have that is to buy it and fix it. So we bought it and fixed it. And sometime into that, um, I, uh, we both started thinking we need to replant. So we got some seeds. We didn't know what we were doing. And, but we just kind of started in. And then one day the ambassador called and said, Bob, this professor, Tom Smith from UCLA is here at a convention. And I think you too should meet. Long story short, Here's Tom Smith. He's right here. He's head of the Institute for Tropical Research at UCLA. He's spent 35 years in Cameroon. Oh. Um, <clears throat> he's an amazing person. We're kind of a brother from another mother. Mm. And, um, and he came down and said, well, we're starting this institute, and we think we could help with your ebony project, these ideas that you have, your dream come true. How much is that going to cost me? Well, he told me, and I said, okay, we'll do that. And since then, I've been continuing to fund it, me, not Taylor. But yeah. Taylor supports in so many ways. Um, but I'm millions of dollars into that. Mm -hmm. And it's a legacy of mine. It's something that I really love. Now we've started an endowment and we're starting to get NGO money because they see what we're doing is, it checks all the boxes like Andy did. And with their expertise and what's going on, we've, we've planted a lot of trees and it's growing exponentially. How many trees we're planting? We're planting them in the right way, in the right location. We're protecting protected areas because there's always a buffer around there. And it has to do with food security to indigenous people. So there's ebony trees being planted in depleted forests with fruit trees. And now they've got food, the food security. If you can pick it and eat it, that's so much less middlemen than picking it and selling it and getting money and buying something. Yeah. And so 
Anyways, that's worked out. And then we started a business with another partner in Seattle in Hawaii, and we've bought property and we lease, we just leased five and a half thousand acre ranch for the next 25 years. Mm -hmm. And we're, re we're doing restoration paid for by the old and the old and decrepit COA that we're taking off someone's land. So you have landowners that are land rich, cash poor, their forest is being eaten up by invasives. Hawaii's an ecological disaster. A lot of people don't know it, but it's wow. it's nothing like the natural Hawaii and all the plants that are, and animals. There's only one mammal that's indigenous to the islands, and that's a little bat this big called the hoary bat. And so the when King Kamehameha got a gift of cattle from General George Vancouver in 1795, those cattle took over the islands. That's why the biggest cattle ranch was in Hawaii for a long time. That's why the Paniolos, which is etymology of that word, was they hired the Mexican vaqueros to come teach them ab about cattle 80 years into it when they were overrun with it. And, the, and, and that, in those days, it, Mexico was Spain, so then they would say Española. Espanole or Espanolo, but there's no S in their alphabet, mm -hmm. so they call them Paniolo instead of Espanolo. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so the Paniolo is the name of the Mexican cowboy, or the Hawaiian cowboys. They'd go to Wyoming, and they'd win the rodeos. These guys would be like, who are these islanders that are rodeoing better than us, you know? Oh, wow. And um, it's been a cattle, cattle country, but they decimate the forest. Yeah. And so when we go in there, the first thing we're doing a project now, we're $800,000 in defensing before we can even cut. Then we wow. gotta get out the cattle, get out the pigs, get out the sheep. <sighs> then we can cut, then the trees will grow and they won't be eaten. And so we've developed, uh, worked hard to develop better strains. I purchased almost 600 acres. It was prime coa forest 150 years ago, it's cattle land now, we're turning it back into forest. Wow. It'll supply us with the COA. Um, those are big projects. And they're yeah. kind of a thing where, for me, I've directly taken out of that and I want to directly put back in. And, yeah. and I'm trying to pay for the people that didn't before me. Yeah. If someone had, if we'd have done this all along, we would be in this boat. Yeah. So that's a, that's a brief, brief rundown. But so we're talking about Cameroon, a lot of work that you're doing there with the Forest in the ebony, and and you met someone there, and you do a lot of missions work and things like that. And can you share a little bit about who you met and what's kind of come to fruition over the years there? Well, I think my favorite story is with Josefa, who's a sister in the Dominican Church, and I met her on the first trip down there. Uh, we were just doing a reconnaissance trip. We went out to a little town called uh, Bertois. And we'd asked if we could see maybe a school in the area. We went in there and, wow, there was 400 kids in this school. And she ran the place. She had all the kids ready to perform and do things. We came back in, and it was nice. It was, it was nice. And it was a school for underprivileged kids. And it's like, I don't know how you can be underprivileged in Bertois because mm. everybody's underprivileged. But there's under underprivileged. And... Um, we were wrapping things up and she was sitting at her desk and we said thank you and I said, what's it cost to run this place? Just curious. Well, then we had to go from CEFA, which is Central African Francs, to Euros to Dollars and it's like uh, $28,000 a year. She had 14 staff members that she paid to, teachers. Wow. And I'm like, we spend more than that on a luncheons 
for teachers to strike. Yeah, you right. know, yeah. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, how's it going? She goes, well, I actually happen to have a briefcase full of rejection notices. I'm gonna, I don't have a CEFA to my name. And I said, well, I have some money. Now here I'm going to talk about Jeremiah 9. I don't know what verse it is, 30 something. Mm -hmm. Don't boast about who you know, what you gave. Yeah. You know, if you're gonna boast about something, boast in the Lord. Yeah. But I'm talking about giving away money. Yeah. But I don't really, I don't really wanna say it as a sense of pride but a sense of being open to need yep. and um, yep. taking care of that. And when I travel, I carry money because money can solve a problem. Yeah. And then I carry it in cash and I had a mess of it in my backpack. And I said, well, I could give you most of that right now. Could take dollars? She's like, what? You know, I go, I'll give it to you. You can be yours and then call me and let's see. Because you could tell she was a steward. I'd never seen... I hadn't seen anything that well done and well run in Cameron. Well, things went on and supported her some more. The, she wasn't getting support from the church. And one day, the church took her out of there. They said, You're, we're sending you to Italy to take a one-year sabbatical and study um, child psychology. And when you come back, we're going to relocate you. They gave her place to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And they put her up in a war zone with nothing, nothing, wow. no place to live. No building, no money, just dirt. And she got to work. She got to work like a bird would build a nest, you know, just arrive and start doing her thing. And she just keep in touch. She says hello. I give her some money. I get some to her that way. She comes all the way in on a bus. And I'm like, Josepha, are you safe going back there? No bird will protect me. And I know how to I know how to be safe, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so she started building this next school, and we have a beautiful relationship. And she's, I've shown you pictures. What she's done. It blows my mind, honestly, it to see that. It blows my mind. Yeah. She's, she digs out of hard pan until she has a school that's respectable. It, you look at it, and you're just like, wow, I could not do that. But she's. Indigenous, she knows the system. It's where she lives. She knows how to make it work. She gets the volunteers. First thing she does, even before she has anything, she finds a room someplace and she brings girls in and teaches them how to sew and tries to keep them from getting pregnant. You know, step one, don't get pregnant, yeah. you know. And, and then I showed you pictures with the hordes of students in there yeah. celebrating the school and doing this, and she does a really big thing. And it's... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of times I'll I'll um, support someone because it's their dream, and a lot and if I well, Lord's blessed me with some money, and so I like to give it away. I'll just I'll just say that. And yeah. sometimes someone will say this, and I'll go, okay, I'll give you this. I'm I'm not going to get on the annual support thing because if you're choosing this, you also have an obligation to figure out how that's going to work for you, yeah. right? But let me get you started, angel investor kind of thing. And yeah. if it works out, it works out. And if it doesn't, well, when I give it to you, it's yours. And I don't, I don't have an expectation from it. But you also learn along the way that if you see somebody that you can trust to do something with it, um, that's a good place to invest some of that money. Yeah. Well, Skyline's a good place for me. Joseph is a good place. Um, 
uh, Pine Valley Christian Camp. When Randy Rebold came in there, I've known Randy forever, and what he says he's gonna do, he does, and he does it on, and so I just had a lunch with him today, and we're thinking about doing some things and and um, infrastructure things. Yeah. Clean up the place. Yeah, boy, it needs it. It but needs it's, what it a bad, great opportunity. Bad, bad. So it's like, yeah. hey, Randy, put together some stuff. Maybe we can help. And yeah. then we talk a little bit more about that. Um, so sometimes the missionary work is here. Sometimes it's far off. I don't know a lot of far off places. Mostly my missionary support has been through Skyline. Mm -hmm. But Josepha is special. Yeah. And to be able to know somebody like her, mm. it's uh, it's just a blessing. I'm in, I'm in awe. I just feel like a, kind of not in her same league. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I noticed, you know, that draws some emotion out of you. And talk about that a little bit. What is it about what she's doing and all of that that really, really draws that emotion out? It's the difference, it's the delta between what she has and what I have, the comfort of her life and the comfort of my life, a third world problem versus a first world problem, the, the, the how much we're spoiled brats. Yeah. We have everything, everything. Yeah. And we don't, we take it for granted. And I'm going to say something that could be really interesting. I remember when Obama said, if you built a business, you didn't build that business. Other people remember that statement. Right. He got in trouble. Yeah. I was so angry about yeah. that. I really, really was. Then I went to Cameroon, and I learned a new definition of nothing. Yeah. And I quit saying I started Taylor from nothing. Hmm. I quit, and then I forgave him for saying that, yeah. you know. Um, and yet sometimes when there's new information, you change your mind. Yeah. So the new information was when I started in business with nothing in Lemon Grove, I had a paved road. When I flushed my toilet, it went somewhere. I had gas and electric if I could pay for it. UPS came every day. I had a roof over my head. I had a way, I had a car to drive. I, it wasn't nothing. Yeah. And so I started with it was nothing, but it wasn't nothing. And Cameroon taught me a whole new definition of nothing. And, um, and that's, that's what causes me to really be emotional and kind of choke up when I talk about Josepha because she's doing so much with so little. She's so encouraging. And, um, you know, when she says, you know, my hands will be empty pretty soon. I don't know what else I can do for God now. She's aging. And she even wrote me recently as we're rounding the project of this new place that she built from, from this, a new definition of nothing. I mean, maybe the moon is more nothingness, but yeah. this is pretty, yeah. you saw the pictures. Unreal. And, um, and she said, Bob, you know, she, we, we feel like partners. She feels like we're partners, you know. And she says, and I think this might be our last thing. You know, that when we finish it, it could be the last thing. I don't know what I'll have left after this. And yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to know a person like that. And and the positivity that she has and some of the messages that you shared when you're in a situation like that, it's so easy to complain. It would be so easy to, oh, why me? And yet she has she's positive. She's out there with her own <laughs> building this place literally with her own hands. And, and caring for these hundreds of, of kids, it is, it is inspiring. And it, 
you just think to yourself, you got nothing to complain about here. We got nothing to complain about. And yet, what do we do? We complain. We're like the Israelites. We complain. God sends manna. He sends every, He sends the meat. He sends everything. He, he, he gives us a dry path through the, the Red Sea. And we don't, what do we do? We, get, we complain. It's interesting because when I think about that, when you're, when you're moving forward, let me say it this way. I sort of believe that production is the basis for morale. Yeah. When you're producing, yeah, that's good. you can have high morale. Mm. You can watch the show, The Deadliest Catch. Mm. They can be, have the worst morale. But they can be class 11 Cs with eight inches of ice on the thing. And when that crab pot has 500 crabs in it and they just keep pulling them up, they, their morale is high because yeah. production is. And so you can start... And as long as you're kind of moving forward, you can have pretty good standards, pretty good morale. Pure poverty can make you can foster bad attitudes. Yeah. And too much affluence can foster bad attitudes. Yeah. And it's amazing the, how you have to have some type of antidote, or, and I can say this, or um, deep roots or good upbringing or some philosophy of life to not just want more and more and more and more. The more you get, the more you want. It's really hard to let go of that. So letting go of it. My parents taught me to tithe when I was this high. Here's a dollar. Ten cents goes to Sunday school. That's one's not yours, yeah. right? And um, same with my wife. And so, uh, and it doesn't matter the amount that you're, that you're earning, that ability to realize that it's not all yours. And let's, let's take God out of the picture just for a second. Mm -hmm. That might be the first budgeting thing anybody ever does in their life, which is this dime goes here. Yeah. And it teaches them how to budget. Then you add God's yeah. blessing to that. Yeah. And miracles happen. Yeah. So it teaches a habit, right? And you've lived it. <laughs> you're living it now. I'm living God's it now. God's a blessing, and that's been something that you've done since you were yeah. a kid. And so it sort of, to me, I, I think about that question, you know, we have all this and yet we complain. Well, I think that we've lived in affluence maybe a little too long. Yeah. And so that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And you said something, you know, these one-liners that you've lived on, and you said something a while back. I don't remember if you got it from Maxwell or someone else, and you even share who you got it from, but I haven't forgotten it since you, you told me. Um, but you, you said something. When you talk about wanting more, wanting more, you can have anything you want. But you can't have everything. Dan Ryland told me that. Dan Ryland, okay. Yeah, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything. I haven't forgotten it, man. That, that's isn't that's, that good? It's a great line to remember. Yeah, it's a great. Line. He went on to say, "Life is a series of trades, and you should try and make good trades. You have to trade one thing for another. You have to trade your time and your money for an education. You do just like think yeah. about it. You're gonna make a trade. Try to make good trades, but you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything." And I remember I was doing a talk at a university in Tokyo, and everything through a translator. And all these university students there, and they all knew who I was, and you know, they're they easily worship people yeah. right there. And it's their culture, and these yeah. kids were just like Bob Taylor's here. And 
So anyways, at the end, someone just said, do you have a, like a life philosophy? And you know, you don't want to be like, whoa, no, I right. don't have <laughs> And so I'm like, I got to pull one out. And I told him that. I'm like, you wouldn't have believed the, you know, they was able to translate it. Sometimes yeah. in some languages, they have a hard time translating mm. some, anything and everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, um, but they translated it and it just hit because these are young students that feel like they have to go where the push of society is making yeah, them go. And right. for them, what they love about Americans is we can have anything we want. We can do what we want. Yeah. Okay, well, we can. But you can't do everything you want. That's so good. Isn't it a good one? That is so good. Now, let's share some more because you've got, you've got these things, these you know, quotes that you've lived by that are, that are so good like that. Um, do you have them in categories? Like, let's say, with your family life, is there a, one that kind of sticks out that you live by? No, no. Yeah. Well, maybe, but I'll think of it when I get home. Right. Of course. I, I I'm not organized in that yeah. way. I just, I just. Okay. Let's I'm just spout some off. What are some that you remember that that have really stuck out? Um, you know, over the years. Should have written them down. I love. I love one that I got from John Maxwell, which is you don't have to survive. Yeah. I love I, I like that one a lot. Now, now I'm, I'm un- that. I know what you mean by that because you told me in the past, but, but share a little bit more about that. What does that mean when he said that you don't have to survive? Uh, you don't have to put yourself first. You don't have to push your way to the front of the line. You don't have to make sure that everything turns out to where you're on top. You know, he who puts himself first shall be last and he was last shall become first you know it's a it's just like I don't have to survive and that is something that when when I internalize that and it's then I'm I'm cool yeah with Andy becoming the person that all the magazines want to talk to all the people want to because here what I wanted to happen is happen yeah. now I can't be, go around being jealous about it yeah Right. right or feeling like I'm left out, um, I survive in different ways. Um, you know, as soon as you, it's it's kind of like if you say, "Hey, who famous plays your guitar?" Well, there's a thousand of them, and I can't think of one. Yeah, you know, yeah. so I, I'm on the spot. I know Zach to think Brown of does. <laughs> 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 um, oh, what was the fir- who was the first guy or gal? Who was the first one that said? I believe in this Taylor guitar. I love this guitar and kind of put you on that star map, if you will, of stars starting to use your guitar. My first recollection is Neil Young, 1976, bought one of our 12 strings, bought two of them. And he played it in his movie, Rush Never Sleeps. And I remember going down to the, I think it was the Pacific Cinerama. I can't remember. I think that was the name. It was a Mission Valley, 70 foot screen, and I went with a few buddies because we heard that he was playing this guitar. And I'm, I, I'm actually an introvert, and I don't, I don't want to be. I mean, I've learned how to get up and speak. Sure, it's not what I want to do. If I, if I, I remember I have a scar right here, big old giant cut, goes from there to there because I cut my finger on the day that I had to say my part in the Christmas play when I was little and it was like, thank you God. And I didn't have to go and say, a man of the East 
<laughs> I followed the prophets, you know, yeah. <laughs> fulfilling the star of a king for the Jews, you know, this whole thing. I had my yeah. whole, I had my whole little thing, you know, memorized, but it was like, oh my gosh, I have 13 you stitches and I don't have to go do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so anyways, I forgot where we even were. I got off, I got off track, but, um, uh, the, the stars. So, uh, Neil Young. Oh, so, so people were my buddies. I'm like, don't tell anything. Hey, there's doing guys in front of me oh, you know i'm yeah. 22 years old yeah. and they're going hey they play his guitar i'm like they we don't know that shut up stupid <laughs> i don't want to you know i didn't want to have a promise yeah. that i couldn't keep but then he did play our guitars and um and it was a good day because i'd been building guitars for a few years i saw neil young do that uh, but what i always say is the next day i went back to my shop and started working yeah it didn't change my life um the people that that really had a bigger effect were dealers who believed in our guitars and sold them to people. One of them was a man named Fred Wallachy who owned a store uh, called Westwood Music, and it's in Westwood up mm -hmm. in LA. And he was there when the California country rock scene flowed down from Topanga Canyon and the hills and the Mamas and the Papas and mm. Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and mm -hmm. the Eagles and Jackson Brown and everybody that was from my generation of being, you know, young high school 20s, he provided them with guitars. Mm -hmm. And he was a guy that every single one of those people hold him in high, high, high esteem. He's passed away now. Um, but he would give them a guitar and go, go do your music and come in and pay me some money every week, whatever you can. Wow. And he he provided guitars to all those broke people that became mega stars. David Correct. Geffen was oh, wow. there, started Geffen Records. Geffen Herb Records. Albert started AM Records. I mean, all that stuff started at that one little moment in time, you know. And he decided he liked our guitars and he sold them to people like that. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It's it's the it's the person before that. I heard one person say, wouldn't it be great to have been Billy Graham? And, and the answer of this make-believe story, maybe it was true, is wouldn't it be great to be the person who told Billy Graham about God? <laughs> yeah, Billy Sunday is who that was. <laughs> I'm, there you go. Right? Pro baseball player, yeah. There you Billy go. Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, that what is so interesting. So you, your guitar starts to get with you know, more of these stars. Now today, to put you on the spot again... Who can you think of some of them that are? I mean, I know there's so many because I, I watch particularly whenever I'm watching a music video or an award show, I'm looking to see if it's a Taylor, and it's quite often that I see it is a Taylor guitar. Yeah, well, if you take like Alan Jackson or George Strait or Zach Brown or Taylor Swift or you know yeah, on and on, there, yeah, a lot yeah. of those people do. A lot of uh, you know Kenny Loggins for people from yeah. my generation, Jim Messina. Um, it goes on and on. Yeah. But you know the ones that make me the happiest? The ones that make me the happiest are, are guitars that we make in our Mexico factory, which are less expensive. And it's the kids that show up on contestant, as contestants on The Voice yeah. and American Idol because they show up with a guitar that I never had, mm. that I never could have afforded, that they could afford. Yeah. And, they, and the, it's... It's a guitar. I see so many of them there, and it's like, here's this 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 
19 year old, yeah. their parents gave them a little money, they earned a little money, they ran a paper route, they bought that, you know, Taylor 114 that we made in Mexico, and they sound on that show as good as any guitar yeah. can possibly sound. Yeah. And I love that. I, I, I'm amazing. thrilled about that because it's, it, I feel like I told Andy he could feel, which is you can help more people have a better musical experience. What uh, you did the same thing in at the the shop in Tecate, right? As you did at the the one here. Is, do I understand that right? That you also did it. Was it Aesop? It's an Aesop, and it's the first Aesop ever in Mexico. Ever in Mexico that they are owners, and that's like like you explained earlier. Yeah, that's powerful. It, that that was a hard thing to do, I and bet. it is powerful there. I bet that's made a big difference. I mean, in, in, the the the. The accounting and legal uh, creativity we had to go through with their government, our government, uh, yeah. the whole thing to make it be okay. Um, they did it. And we're trying to, we're working with the ESOP community to, we used a Canadian pension fund as our outside funding for the purchase. And they're, have a new idea. Yeah. They're like, we're investing pension fund money into a pension. What could be better? And so the Canadian East, they have no vehicle like this in Canada. When you think of how much more socialistic we are, or they are than we are, yeah. and yet they have no way for an owner to dispose of this, Bob, you're going to sell your company on the day you die, or sometime before that. Yeah. They have no way for an owner to sell that to employees like we're doing. Now, our ESOP is tax-free because it's a qualified retirement plan. Oh, yeah. So we save enough money in taxes as a corporation to make a lot of the payments into yeah. the loans to purchase a company. But I'm, I'm proud of the fact that um, our company is well-known. There are a lot of good companies that um, people know about. But most of them might be so-and-so pipe and supply or yeah. pump motors or a grocery store chain or something like that. But guitar, just guitars itself is like an Excalibur. It, people want to talk about the guitar. They yeah. get interested. What makes Taylor Guitars, uh, they're, they're renowned worldwide as being such good quality and sound, and everything, but what makes them different? What makes that the key difference, would you say? Well, <clears throat> we have a different sound than the guitars that have typically been made. Our sound is more bright and clear. Mm. And the typical guitar sound is more bass heavy. And I always say, um, you can express any adjective of a person or a food or a thing positively or negatively, based on whether you like it or not. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like, this food is ridiculously hot. It's just too spicy. And someone is like, man, I love the spiciness in this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And, they'll, and so we, we, you, might, you might describe the guy, some girl might describe the guy across the room that's a dreamboat in one way, and someone who's not attracted describes yeah. the same features with negative words. Yeah. Well, our guitars, um, to people who like them, and that's about half the people who play guitar, yeah. you know, and the other half don't. Yeah. 
So if I changed it to where they'd like it, these people would stop liking it, yeah. you know. But they describe it as clear, bright, resonant, you know, cuts through. And the people who don't go, oh, it's, it's, um, it's tinkly, it's got no soul. And then they go, no, my guitar, it's, it's rich, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's gutsy. And someone's going, it's tubby and fat, falls all over itself, you know? Yeah. It's just interesting. <laughs> it's a flavor. But, so I never focused on the sound. I made my sound. I fell into it however I did. People liked it. What I focused on was there were really three areas to the guitar that I think of. One is the playability, one is the consistency, how does it arrive at a store, and the other is the sound. Mm. The sound is subjective, I can't win that game, yeah. but the other two I can win. Wow. So I built myself my own self-certified PhD on playability and consistency, and dealers well, if I have 50 dealers in a room and I said, who thinks that our guitars are the best sounding? Raise your hand. And they're like, and I'm like, I know only 45% of you will raise your hand. They're like, we're surprised you'd know that. And I go, well, no, I mean, I mean, really, because you're all thinking of your favorite yeah, guitar yeah. and it might not be this. I go, but raise your hand if you think we make the most, mm. or the best playing. They all go up. You know, like, that's what I spent my life on. That's my foundation and my roof. Uh, well, plus the strength of the company, but Andy makes better sounding guitars than me. And there is such a thing as a better sounding guitar. So he's able to keep those characteristics we have and give some people a little bit more of that guts. Takes us from 45% approval rating to 51, 50, yeah. 49, sure, 47 sure. and a half. <laughs> you what, know, it's what, kind of funny. Hey, what about someone who is uh, wanting to get into playing guitar? They want to learn how to play guitar. What is your advice for someone like that? That's like, you know what? I, I like watching people play guitar. I like the sound of a guitar, but I don't know how to play guitar. It's never too late, and YouTube can teach you. You can learn anything you want to learn. You can go on YouTube, learn how to play the learn guitar, it. and how to fix the water pump on your dishwasher. <laughs> you true. know, the one that you have. You know, yeah. and if it's not there, you feel robbed. Yeah, it's you know, <laughs> it's like, what's this world coming to? But um, it's it's never easier than going to YouTube. And my advice is, uh, learn how to play a song. Don't learn how to play this chord and oh, then that chord okay. and then this chord. It's kind of like learning how to say this word and then that word, and then this word, you're better off learning how to say this sentence. Yeah, that's good. Play that sentence. So pick a song. There's only three chords in a song, most yeah. of them. Pick a song in a key that you can sing and play that song 100 times, and your muscle memory. Good country music, three well, chords and the truth. Three chords and the truth. That's right. And, um, and so that's good. And um, a better guitar will allow you to, you'll have a better experience. Mm. My friend Doyle Dykes, who's one of the greatest guitar players ever, and he plays um, the church circuit. In fact, I just talked with him today, and he was a clinician for us for a long, long time. He's an incredible player, lives in Cleveland, Tennessee. I mean, an incredible player. I'll turn you on to him. Um, um, he says, he would talk about guitars when he was doing clinics or maybe in between songs, and he said, yeah, I did a concert once, you know, with this Tennessee accent. And this little boy came up to me afterwards and he said, 
wow, you sure do play that guitar. I can't play like that. I just have a crummy old guitar. And Doyle's like, well, <laughs> maybe I ought to get a better guitar, you know. <laughs> but uh, musical instruments, yeah. if, you, if you get a little bit better one, it's more fun. Kind of like you don't have to be a gear hound. Like any, you know, if, you, if I said, hey, what's your advice for uh, baseball? You go get a bat, get a glove, get a ball, start hitting that thing. Hit it as much as you can. Yeah. Throw it and catch it as much as you can. Learn where the ball is, yep. you know. There you go. And it's just, it's just practice, practice, practice. But it's because it's never easy, never easier than now, and it's never too late. I have a friend who's 77. He just bought a guitar from me. And he's learning how to play it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and he's loving it. Yeah. Every day he gets it out and he plays. It's brilliant. Yeah. Love that. It's a soothing thing. It is. I mean, that's that's the thing about it, especially a, especially a quality one like, like a Taylor. Also, you don't have to be good. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't, some people are going to get good and some people aren't. But the, but music, it's, music is incredible. Yeah. And think about this. Before there was recorded music or recording, every performing art had to be heard live, and when they were done playing it or singing it or saying it, it was over yeah. until you could hear somebody do it again. Yeah. So there were, there were more people that played instruments in those days because it was something that was almost compulsory so that you could have some entertainment in the home. You know, yeah, yeah. per capita, I think more people play. They learned how to play a piano. They learned how to play something. Yeah. And they'd sit around and they'd play as a family. That's how they heard music. We have music everywhere and aren't compelled to play it as much. But it's fun. It's fun. Oh, that's good. Question about leadership in terms of, well, maybe it's more of, yeah, I guess it's in leadership in terms of when you were in the hiring process, kind of in the thick of it, and you're looking for certain people. I mean, you gave me your list for Andy, clear. What, what qualities did you look for in employees when you're bringing people on? Was there a process you guys went through and kind of said, we're looking for someone who has this, this, and this to be part of Taylor Guitars? Yeah, so you often don't find that out till after the hire. Yeah. You know, um, I found that my... My leaders come where they come. They uh, the ones that. Um, well, I'll give you a, I'll give you my little circle of responsibility lesson in a second. But um, oh, my little pictographic imaginary one. But um, we we look for someone who's <clears throat> engaged when they. I mean, we have, our employees apply online. Mm -hmm. If they don't, if they won't do that, they they. Fail the first test. Step one, yeah. <clears throat> Simple. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to come in and out. Okay, well, you just skipped, you just failed the first test. You know, yeah. it's like we made it perfectly clear. Here's how you do it. And you might think that we're not going to look, but we do look, yeah. you know. Um, and so uh, we do a skills test with people, see if they have hand skills. Most of our jobs are building guitars, but we've got a lot of administrative people. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that we do all the normal things that you look for in a good employee. You find what's clear-eyed, bright. Um, but back when I used to be more involved in hiring, I would often tell people, Jeremy, I know this is your first day. 
And I just want to say this. This company is not as incredible as you think it is on your first day. And it's not as bad as you think it is on your last day. <laughs> We're somewhere in the middle. And I, I just want you to find the middle. And then you're going to do okay. Yeah. Right? Don't expect too much. We're not going to expect too much. And if you have the capability to move ahead, we'll move you ahead. Mm. Some people say, well, it's all political around here. It's like, you're, you're just picking these guys because you want them to advance. Yeah, because they're helping me. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to help me, <laughs> you'll advance too. Yeah. So... I'm a little bit, personally, I'm a little bit more of a, uh, it's a numbers game. You're just, now, if if I had a place and there's 12 people and everybody's got to be spot on, I would probably have developed a whole lot more targeted way. Yeah. Um, a lot of people ask me, we want to, because when people tour Taylor Guitars, they always go, your staff, your staff. Mm-hmm. I mean, always. It's always the first thing. They're so engaged, and they're not afraid, and they step out of what they're doing because they see we're visiting, and they engage with us and show us, go the extra mile. It's like, how do you find those people? And I say, that's not the question. The question is, how do we keep those people? Yeah. yeah. And what's and the key s- for you guys in, in that, keeping those people? Because you've had longevity. You've had some people that have been there a long time. We have a, we have a lot of longevity. Um, treat them with respect. Realize that uh, we're trying to do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Mm. And then I look at an organization as there's, there's three legs to a stool of what you can do. I call them this. I call them technology, organization, education, mm. or training. Anything you're going to do to improve things is going to fit in one of those categories, and I don't think there's another category. I think those are the three. Technology, organization, training. Mm -hmm. And then the visual that I give to people is a spring, like a coil spring on a car, and a little choo-choo train that's got three cars, and one of them is called technology, organization, and training, and they should be tied together, and they should climb that path together. And you shouldn't have technology up here and organization down mm. here and training in the middle. Yeah. Because you're wasting your technology dollars if you're not organized. You're wasting your training dollars if you don't even have computers at work yeah. that work. That's good. You know, you're so I like to take a look at that and go, which category needs the most? Some people say, hey, let's pick the low-hanging fruit. But mm, I, I try and keep those three things together. When I do talk to an employee about themselves. I do a little thing. I, I say, um, I'm going to draw you what I call circle of responsibilities. Here's the inside circle. I call that me and my job. So I call it me and my job. That's the first circle. That's the absolute least that I can expect from you and that you can give mm. and still be called an employee and a productive citizen in life, me and my job. Yeah. This is the one It's like I'm, I, I come here, I do my job, I go home, it's me and my job. And then the next ring is things around you. Would you bother to turn out the light when you leave? Would you flush the toilet if it's clogged or would you take a plunger to it? 
Would you, do you clean up a sink behind where you go? Mm -hmm. Do you still run a saw when it's screeching and you know you should turn it off so that you can be the last person to run a piece of wood through it before it burns up and you slink over there and get me and my job done? Yeah. And then the next circle is people around me. And that's when you go, uh, hey, I, you know, when you do this thing here on the guitar, you're using a death grip, you're going to get carpal tunnel. You want me to show you? how to do it a lot more relaxed and get done easier, and then it's things. And after you get out of me and my job, which is where 80% of people live, yeah. if you ask me, yeah. then the rings go out concentric from that, and it's people, things, people, things, people, things, people, things, people, things. Yeah. That's what it is. It's like the pretty soon you're out here saying, oh, we need English as second language training, and we need to put a gate around here because people are getting their cars done. We need to landscape this. And, and we need, you know, but it's things and people, and you need both of those yeah. things. And uh, if, generally speaking, with our group of people, I believe in telling the truth, even if there's looming bad news, tell it early. Hey, we're letting you know that we see some bumps in the road ahead. So we don't know, but if you're in the, we'll let them decipher what that means. But yeah. if you were going to buy that new car today, I'm letting you know something mm. that's coming up. Um, treat people the way you wish an employer would treat you, yeah. which is with respect. Um, we don't, and then I like to say we, we take our work very seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. So yeah, I'm great. sure all of those things ring true to you. Mm -hmm. Amen. 100%. It's not always the easiest thing to do. No. Because people are there also themselves. Yes. And they may go along with that or they may not. That's exactly right. Well, as we wrap up, I want to leave uh, with an opportunity for you to share anything on your heart that uh, you would like to share about any, anything we talked about or um, some last advice for people even that maybe we didn't get to or we didn't cover. It's just some... Well, if I were to talk about stuff, I, I mean, I think there are certain philosophies that can, uh, that can be placed in a lot of different baskets, you know? So why don't we talk about, why don't we talk about Skyline? Why don't yeah. we talk of... I, t I touched on a little bit earlier, but, you know, life, you can have anything you want, can't have everything you mm -hmm. want. You can... The, the, the weather changes even if you stand still. Right. And um, if you want to build a good church and be a part of it, or if you want to build a good business and be a part of it, if it's not a corrupt environment to begin with, but if you look at it and go, yeah, it's pretty good, then dedication to that can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. A lot of people win by simply not quitting. And starting over all the time, I, I have noticed that sometimes people that have had five or six bad employment experiences expect me to make up for all of those on the first day. Yeah. But you're really starting over. So if you can play through, let the weather change, um, contribute, production is the basis for morale. Mm -hmm. So if all you're doing is taking up space at church or at at your work, wondering what you're getting out of it, the me and my job, what's me and my job at church, you know? Yeah. We all have a job, we have lay ministries, we all have sort of different things we can do. I've sort of figured out what I can contribute and it's different things than what other people yeah. can contribute. Um, if you do that, I like John Maxwell's 
Got a bucket of water, got a bucket of gasoline. Which one are you going to pour on a fire? You know, those things can apply here at Skyline. Yeah. They can apply at your job. They can apply at something that you're trying to learn. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a real fan of just dogging something until you get there. Yeah. I am. Well, you have had and continue to have an incredible influence, not just on our church, but in our community, obviously in the music industry. And as your pastor, I appreciate you. I want you to oh, know that. You. And um, your legacy and your history and your stick to here through all, through all these years has made a huge difference in what we get to experience today. And so we're very grateful for you. And I know our people are as well, and we appreciate everybody tuning in to this episode of Faith and Culture, and we'll see you next time right here on Faith and Culture at Skyline Church.